0: I kind of want a picture of you. (laughs) Okay, all right. Thanks, guys. Think about you often. When anybody begins a race, they begin with the end in mind. Nobody starts a race just to start a race. They start a race to end a race. (laughs) everybody who loves running, or hates running rather, is like, amen, I don't even start races. Um, The end is on their mind at the beginning, and how they run throughout is determined by how they want to end. It's how races work. Christian life is a race. It has a beginning and it has an end. The beginning is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. The end is... Death, or the Lord's return, and then a judgment which takes place following that. And like runners run determined by how they want to end, Christian, how you live is determined by how you want things to go for you in the end. We need to think about the end this morning. As we come toward the end of James' letter, we need to... Look at the end of all things. We need to see where everything goes and we need to ask ourselves, are we living in light of the end? That seems like an awfully big question. Praise God that James does what James always does. He gets down into the trenches fast. And he shows us in real time, in real life, what that means to live in light of the end. So would you open up your Bibles to James chapter 4, verse 11, as we continue in this wonderful book God's given to us, James chapter 4, verse 11. And I'm going to read through chapter 5, verse 12. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes. And your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is what it looks like to live in light of the end. I see four big ideas here. Be careful how you speak. Be mindful who's in charge. Beware the love of money. And be patient till Jesus comes back. Let's take a look at the first. Be careful how you speak. And by the way, if you're new, you may be helped to follow along in the bulletin outline that I've given you. If you have that open and if you have your Bible open, you're going to be all set. Verse 11 says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. I want you to remember there's conflict among the Christians that James is writing to. 4.1 says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? You don't don't say that unless there are quarrels and fights among you. (laughs) Before that, he's called them to walk according to the wisdom from above because it's it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, and it leads to unity and harmony instead of disharmony and division. And immediately prior to this text, he calls them to repent. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense given the conflict among believers, given a following, following immediately a call to repent, for James to say, do not speak evil of your brothers. This is in keeping with repentance. To speak evil of your brothers includes many types of harmful speech. It could be questioning legitimate authority, like when the people of Israel spoke against God and Moses in Numbers 21.5. It could be bringing an incorrect accusation about someone. It could be speaking critically about someone slander. The big idea forbids critical speech. You could say it in different ways. Do not defame your brother. Do not disparage your brother. Do not malign, smear, badmouth, knock down, slam, roast, gas. Well, I don't know. Don't talk about a brother like this at all. And I appreciate what one commentator adds. He says, we don't have to tell lies in order to defame. In other words, what you're saying may be true, but that doesn't give you a right to say it. The reality is, whether true or false, speaking like this about our brothers puts us in a, in a superior position over them. So at least in our mind, we're putting ourselves here and we're putting them here. And, and psychologically, this is part of the reason why we do this, right? Because it makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves when we're here and they're here. But this is pride. This is the opposite of James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. We're exalting ourselves when we do this. To humble yourself, to exalt yourself. Like, that's not good. And we're exalting ourselves over God's law. Look at verse 11 again. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. How is that the case? How is speaking evil against a brother or judging a brother speaking evil of the law and judging the law? It's like this. You're judging the law in that instead of submitting to it, all of it, which includes not slandering your brother, instead of submitting to it, you're actually standing over it, above it, and you're picking and choosing which commands you're going to obey. But if you're a judge of the law, you're not a doer of the law, you're a judge. When you or I act arrogantly, like we have the right to choose which of God's laws we're going to submit to, we're no longer doers of the law. And that should sound off sirens of concern in our soul, because James' constant exhortation is that you must be a Doer of the word if you would be saved in the end but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves 123 or how about 210 for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it for he who said do not commit adultery said also do not murder if you do not commit adultery but you do murder you have become a transgressor of the law maybe we should just change that up For he who said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not speak evil against your brother. If you do not commit adultery, but you do speak evil of your brother, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Again, we are pressed here. Uncomfortably pressed. To see sin differently than I think we tend to see sin. My guess is that you probably wouldn't put critical speech about your brothers in this serious of a category. But the Bible does. It's so serious that you're actually talking and acting like you're taking God's place. Verse 12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge his brother? So when you talk critically about each other, you're claiming for yourself what only God can claim. He's the, one that he, he's, he's the one and he's the only one who can actually righteously say, I'm up here and you're down here. <laughs> we can't do that at all with one another, brothers, because we're all on the same level. None of us are above the other. We are all desperate for the mercy and grace of God. And therefore, this prideful spirit of criticism and self-exaltation is absolute garbage and it must be put away or else we will be judged. The end is in view here. Eternal life and damnation are in view here. Just pause. It's not a bad time to say uh-oh. <laughs> would you include this in your list of top five things to be aware of when running the race of faith? In your discipling relationships with younger Christians in our church, would you have it on your mind to warn them of this danger or call them to account if they do? In your prayer life, when you are confessing sin, are you asking God to search your heart to see if you are critical and judgmental of your brothers and sisters, and if that's finding its way out in your conversation or in your texts? It needs to be. Practically, because it's a subtle sin, we're likely to blow off as no big deal. But even more importantly, theologically, because it's breaking the second great commandment to love your neighbor in Christ. If you live your life breaking the second great commandment, do you think the judgment is going to go well for you? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 18:21. This is why James writes, your life must live your faith. Your life must live your faith. You must be a doer of the word because only doers of the word will be saved. So be careful how you speak, brothers and sisters. And next, be mindful who's in charge. Look at 13 again. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So, I like Star Wars The Force Awakens, and there's one scene in there where Finn says to Phasma after they've taken Phasma captive, and he's kind of fired up because she used to be like his superior officer and make him do things he didn't want to do, and now she's kind of caught, and he's in charge, and he's a little fired up, and he said, Who's in charge, Phasma? Who's in charge? I'm in charge, Phasma. I'm in charge. It's a good line. Um, None of us as Christians would say, I'm in charge. We know we're not in charge. We know God's in charge. But the trouble is, we can live as though we are. We can live as though we're masters of our own destiny. And that's what James actually identifies as the problem in verse 14. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. This person thinks they're in charge. They see the world laid out before them. They survey their options and they plot out their strategic plan. The arrogant assumption here is that you are the boss of you. You've got the freedom to do what you want. You've got the power to do what you want. Heck, all that matters is for you to decide and make it so. But you're not in charge. You know why? Because we're ignorant. You don't know what tomorrow will bring you got everything sewed up in your mind. you got your future all plotted. you got your plans all made. But you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. You are ignorant, painful, but true. And you're frail, too. What is your life? So James is thinking, what analogy could I come up with to describe your life? Here's one. For you are a mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. Mist is so insubstantial, just think about it, it doesn't have weight, doesn't have force, It's, it's, it's not much of anything, and it's so brief, it hovers in the early morning and then it's gone, that's our life, insubstantial and brief, here one minute, gone the next, illness, accidental death, The return of Jesus Christ could cut short our lives as quick as the morning sun or a gust of wind at five miles an hour clears away the mist. For this reason, we ought to recognize our dependence. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. What God would have us to cultivate, brothers and sisters, is a spirit of humble dependence. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. A spirit of humble dependence. Everyday dependence. If the Lord wills, we will live today. Dependence. He wants us to recognize our dependence upon Him every day. Why do you think He instructs us to pray? Give us this day, our daily bread. It's to cultivate dependence. Dependence. It's to fight our prideful, practical atheism. When we confess he's in charge, but we live like we're in charge, that's practical atheism. We're not saying there's no God, but we're living like there's no God. And it's serious. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, verse 16, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Brothers and sisters, to live as I fear we do sometimes, to get up on Monday without a thought as to God's existence, without a thought that my day belongs to Him, without a thought as to my dependence upon him to even wake up and to even have strength to get my legs out of bed, that's arrogance on our part. It's prideful boasting. That's us living as though we are in charge. There is a total disconnect between our faith and our lives when this happens, and we have got to make this connection and it's hard to make this connection because this is so mundane honestly this is so simple and daily this one and the last one don't speak critically about your brothers don't think that you're in charge so mundane but christianity is lived out in the mundane and living it out in the mundane means you're living it in light of the end what is the end but whenever the mundane stops and you don't know when it's going to stop, so you need to live it. And here I can't help but to say to any who are outside of Christ this morning, waiting to do business with God is so foolish. So if you're saying in your heart, "I'll think about God one day," you know, and you you kind of exit in your mind in this stage in life, here's where I'm going to do business. With God. That day may never come. You have today. That's all you have. And actually, you don't even know if the end of the today is going to come. What is your life? It's a mist. You don't have a promise for anything other than right now. And right now, you can lay down your foolish arrogance that presumes a future you don't know and you can't control. You can lay that down at the foot of the cross along with every other of your sins whatever they may be and receive forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died and rose to pay the price for your sin if you will turn from him and trust if you will turn from your sin and trust in him. Now maybe a barrier for you is that you're a little bit mad. You may be mad. You may be mad because things that you've hoped for and planned for haven't worked out. Things haven't gone the way you want things to go. You know, maybe, maybe one of the reasons for that is because God is trying to show you before it's too late that you're actually not in control. So instead of grasping at what you cannot obtain, God-like control, why don't you come to the one who is in control and who promises that all things, all things, even your plans that don't come to fruition, even the difficult things in your life, all things work together for good to those who trust His Son. Brothers and sisters, I just want to clarify one small thing here. This text doesn't mean we can't make any plans, okay? It's not as though it's sin for you to plan for retirement. It means that we make our plans in a spirit of dependence and with open hands. It means that we make our plans saying, "Lord, here's what I'm thinking, but this is your ball game, and I'm okay with whatever it is you and your providence have for me. I'm okay." with whatever you end up deciding and doing with my life. Which, by the way, don't you think that's going to affect your life? If you live consciously dependent on the Lord, won't that impact the very plans that you actually end up making? Won't that impact the things you long for and work for? If God is actually on your mind, don't you think your life is going to arc Godward instead of selfward? That's the point. And I'd say it will also protect you from the next warning James gives us, and it's a big one. Beware the love of money. Look at 5 1. 5 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. This is a warning about storing up treasure in the wrong place. Speaking to those of means in the church, he begins with a call to repent. Weep and howl. That's an urgent call to repent. Why? Why? For your miseries that are coming upon you. What are the miseries? The miseries of hell. Why in the world would James warn people in the church about hell? Because they're living more for the here and now than they are for the hereafter. And if they keep doing that, hell is exactly what awaits. Well, how do we know they're living more for the here and now than the hereafter? Because they're storing up treasure in the wrong place. Do you guys remember Jesus' parable in Luke 12? There's a wealthy landowner, bumper crops. He looks at himself and he says, what am I supposed to do? I got more than my barns will hold. Here's what I'll do. I'll I'll tear down these barns. I'll I'll build new ones. and, And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And God says to him, you fool. This very night your life will be required of you. These brothers of means are doing exactly the same thing here. And I say brothers of means because I'm afraid when I say rich you think of Jeff Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Elon Musk and you don't think of yourself. But this can be us. We can live like this. We can live for the accumulation of stuff more than we do for the glory of God. And if we do, we will find our riches will rot. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Everything you've lived for ultimately comes to nothing. It's so interesting that he says your gold and your silver have corroded. You know why that's interesting? Because gold and silver don't corrode. They're precious metals. They don't corrode, but they do really if your treasure is here because they've got no value in the life to come. And it's interesting also that he says that they will corrode you. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. It's kind of like James is saying, you can have that, you can live for that, you can, but it will destroy you. And you know, honestly, I get a little bit nervous about Dave Ramsey. I get a little nervous because if you're not careful, Dave Ramsey will turn you into a person who looks like you don't love money. Why? Because you drive a beater and the cushions on your couch are so worn out people hit the floor when they sit down. And on one hand, this is great. At least you're not spending your money on every single upgrade the ads tempt you to, but the danger is his money management tools can foster a love of money in you. Sure, you don't spend it, but you sure do keep it. Sure, you're not overindulgent, but are you generous? Sure, you are not an excessive consumer, praise God, but are you an under-the-radar miser holding on to as much as you can? Sure, you're not broke. Where's your treasure? The love of money is a tricksy little thing. Another example of love of money is fraudulence in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So in an agrarian society, this makes total sense. The person of means is a landowner who pays people to work in his fields. And, and here, brother so-and-so is, is ripping off those who work for him. These people are due something for their labor and he doesn't pay them. Or maybe he pays them, but not in a timely fashion or not what they're worth. By the way, uh, this could look like a lot of things. A word to Christians uh, who are in business, how do you carry yourself? How do you pay those under you? How do you pay your vendors, your contractors? How do you decide what to charge for your goods and your services? How quickly do you settle accounts? Do people walking away from working with you think that they've been treated fairly, honestly, or well? Or do they walk away from you with a sour taste in their mouth, hoping they don't see you again? And if you have any inkling of thought, hey, business is just business, man. Don't lie to yourself. The Lord sees everything you are doing. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Brothers and sisters, do your business dealings reflect the love of God or do they reflect the love of money? Another way we see love of money is self-indulgence. Verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slatter, slaughter. This is a picture of the old saying, He who dies with the most toys wins. It's consistent and persistent longing for the new, the bigger, the better. It's, it's kind of the me monster, unrestrained, frankly. And those who live this way are fattening themselves for the day of slaughter. It's like every day you become more and more fit for judgment. Because every day you show yourselves not the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the servant of money. And no man can serve two masters. Uh, one more note from James on this topic in verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I think James backs to things that harkens back to things that he said in chapter 2. Where he noted how crazy it was that the poor in the church were catering to the rich in the church. And he said, Guys, isn't it the rich that use their power and influence to actually do you harm? Why in the world would you cater to them in the church? Same idea here. The rich, and keep in mind, he's talking to rich in the church. The rich due to their social capital, due to their power and influence, they can exert their will such that less powerful brothers and sisters are oppressed and marginalized. I think murder and, and I think to murder and to condemn is most likely speaking hyperbolically, but maybe it's not. It is crazy what the love of money can do to you. Before moving on, I just want us to pause again. How would James have us think about this section for ourselves? So let me just say, first of all, James is not forbidding riches. Paul tells us what to do if we are rich. 1 Timothy 6.17 As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So this isn't forbidding riches, but I would say to you, beware, brothers and sisters, of the desire for riches. First Timothy 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we must be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pains. So it's fine to be rich. And frankly, I have to tell you that all of us in this room are rich. If we were to compare our household wealth to the rest of the entire world, I guarantee you we'd be in the top 20%, every single one of us. And honestly, that's not a problem. There is nothing inherently evil in having money. The problem is a self-oriented approach toward money. So in regards to your money you need to ask yourself what do you want the conversation between you and the Lord to look like when it comes to your stewardship of the resources he put in your hands? What do you want the conversation between you and the Lord to look like when it comes to your stewardship of the resources he put in your hands? Is he going to see your stewardship And see generosity. Giving. A heart and a life that looks to jump at every opportunity to bless. Or will he look at your stewardship and see a desire to have. And to hold. To give enough but not too much. Will he see love for his son in the way you stewarded resources. Or will he see love for money brothers and sisters if we want to live in light at the end we've got to be careful we've got to be mindful we've got to be zealous about how we think and live and act in regard to money because no man can serve two masters amen and finally we need to live in light of being patient until Jesus comes back look at verse 7 Now, they may have resettled by this time, but they've been uprooted nonetheless, kind of like a lot of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters. And James' word is be patient. Be patient how long? Until the coming of the Lord. And he says, follow the patience of the farmer in this way. Think about how patient farmers have to be. I'm not a farmer, I'm not patient enough to be a farmer. Kevin, bless you, brother. How patient do farmers have to be? They put the seed in the ground, and then they wait, and 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 they're doing a lot of work, but you don't see a lot of the fruit of the work. And the rain comes, and they wait, and the rain comes, and they wait, And then eventually, one day, Lord willing, there's a harvest. Follow the patience of the farmer, Christian. Wait until the Lord Jesus comes back. Be faithful, keep at it, wait. And follow the patience of the prophets too. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfastness. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You know, a lot of the prophets, frankly, had it really bad. Not your best life now. Okay? Nobody liked them. They were often in danger. They were often barely getting by. But they were faithful. They proclaimed the word of God and they waited and they were faithful. Be patient like that. And the thing is here's the deal with the prophets. A lot of the prophets never saw any fruit from their labor. Do you recognize that? They just labored and labored and labored and labored, but they did not see the harvest. Some farmers get to see the harvest, Job got to see something. Many of the prophets, all they saw was a future day. Be patient like them in this life. Whether things are well or whether things aren't well. What is James doing? If we were to just zoom out for a minute, if I've lost you, may I find you here? He's setting our expectations. Faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ at all times and particularly in hard times. Trials. Troubles. Back to chapter 1. Blessed is the man who is steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those that love him. But let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. If any man lacks wisdom to interpret trials and troubles like that. Let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given. James is setting our expectations at the first of the book and at the last of the book. Be faithful. And so think about this. The goal of the Christian life, brothers and sisters, is not to get relief from hardship. So when you're in a season of difficulty and suffering or sickness or trial or a loved one that's not well, do you realize the actual ultimate goal in that is not relief? The goal of the Christian life is to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in the hardship, in the trial. So do you have that as your frame of reference? Do you have that as your frame of, reckness, of, of reference in sickness and sickness? In famine, in conflict, in war, untimely death of loved ones? Will you be faithful? It ties us into the last thing. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So I don't think this is an absolute prohibition regarding oaths. I think the point is that you're a man of your word. I think the point is that you say what you mean and you do what you say. You have said, I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep your word, brother and sister. Be a doer of the word, brother and sister. Keep your commitment to Christ, which will result in you keeping your word to others, which will keep you from falling under condemnation. This is all about being doers of the word. Is James teaching a salvation by works? I shouldn't even have to ask or answer the question. Heck no. James is teaching nothing more than what Paul teaches, which is that saving faith actually works. It lives, it breathes, it obeys the law of God. And it does so in the mundane cracks and crevices of life. Saving faith gets into the nitty-gritty and it transforms us. It transforms how we talk, and how we live, and how we walk from now until the end. And so this morning, if you are a sufferer and a struggler, To the one who is weighed down with less zeal and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ than you would desire and your conscience is pricked, my encouragement to you is to merely be faithful. Keep moving. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Be patient until the Lord Jesus returns. Don't be discouraged by your flubs. You are saved by the grace of God alone not by your obedience. Just keep moving. But to anyone this morning who is comfortable and not afflicted by the things that I have said, the Scripture would have you to feel the weight of every single exhortation in this passage and fear. Because the only faith that saves is the faith that looks like this. So if you are comfortable, feel the weight and come to Jesus Christ freshly in repentance and faith and trust Him for His grace and walk out your faith in fear and trembling. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We recognize that your grace is costly. It costs you everything. It costs us nothing, but it actually costs us everything. You would have us to follow you really, truly, wholly. Grant us grace that we might continue to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.